0: particularly the kind of intense form of practice that we're doing called being on meditation retreat. I often describe that as, and think of it myself as, uh, putting life under the microscope, the microscope of awareness. There can be the tendency to think of this as some sort of Different thing from normal life, and we might pick out the actually very few details that are different. I mean, in the whole context of our human experience, there's a very few things that are different. You know, we're moving a little slower than usual, we're uh, maybe eating slightly different food than usual, we're talking a bit less than usual sitting around a bit more than usual. right? That's what's different. The broad strokes of human experience called feeling, thinking, seeing, experiencing, taking taking in what's happening and making sense of it in the various ways that we do, that's the main feature of human existence. That's all going on exactly the same way. And I think even that understanding is really helpful in terms of the kind of the, the ideas we have about integrating this practice in the rest of our life. What we're integrating in the rest of our life isn't the speed we're walking at, or how much we're going to be speaking in the rest of our life, or how many hours a day we're going to be sitting around doing this thing called meditation. That's not what we're interested really in bringing into our life. What we're interested in is the exploration of the way I see and experience and perceive life and the understanding of what I do with that. So the broad strokes of life, as I say, are the same here. The same activities are going on. The difference is that we're putting those broad strokes of life under the microscope of awareness and you know, like when you put something under a microscope the fact of looking at it much closer is it stands out much more so even though there's a lot of simplification of our life here of the, the, the details and activities it's often the same things we're noticing the same patterns The same reactions, the same ways of uh, taking an experience and making sense of it in different ways. A nice saying one of my friends here uses, he says, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And in terms of that simplification of life on the retreat, in terms of that putting of life under the microscope, it tends to be it tends to be the case that it doesn't matter it doesn't much matter what it is we're doing. The fact of putting it under the microscope shows us how we're doing it, and as we've been exploring how we're doing it tends to have quite a lot to do with demands and defences and distractions. So, even though it's not a very glamorous subject, and partly because of the ways several of you have spoken to me about the, uh, looking at your experience through that lens... And partly because it's, you know, it's, so, it's a very, very central lens in this practice. I thought I'd take some time just to kind of open that up a little more. What we were, we were calling yesterday, the, the demand and defense and distraction, uh, what was I calling them, mechanisms of avoidance or patterns of avoidance or something like that. We spoke about the, the, the energetic uh, expression of those movements as we, as we can uh, find them in our lived experience, the, 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 the moving towards something particular called demand, the moving away from called defense, and the going unconscious called distraction. Another way we're speaking them about them would be as three forms of wanting. I mean three forms of wanting things to be other than they are. The kind of direct contrast with the title of the retreat. Right now it's like this and it's like all all this effort all these mind moments, all this seeming struggle sometimes to honour what speaks to us somehow, deeply. That's why we're here, right? Some inspiring vision of living in the truth that right now it's like this. And yet the irony of being confronted with all the ways, yeah, that's a nice idea, but not this, this. Some other this, and then I'll really get into some other this. Like if my knees weren't hurting, then I'd be really like, with it like this. Except knees are hurting, that's the this. If I wasn't sleepy, then I could really get into it. If I'd slept better last night, if the crows weren't so noisy. Sometimes people leave notes for the coordinators. Can you please do something about the crows? So that I can really be with things as they are. (laughs) Uh, let's see. Depen- the serenity prayer? Uh-huh. Just never parts to the cross. Okay. so. I mean, against some things, we can do something, right? Yeah. We don't accept everything. No, we don't. We'll we'll get onto to that. Okay. It's... So we find ourselves, you know, in this kind of comic, I mean we laugh when we hear it we find ourselves in this kind of comic and yet tragic situation that we invite ourselves into the capacity to abide in an undemanding way, in an undefended way, in an undistracted way and like you're pointing out maybe it's not that there's anything wrong with having demands some things we really we feel very moved to to demand to want. Right? It might be that which we want to have, that which we want not to have, and that which we want to uh, ignore, distract from, move away from. So it's not about that we're trying to take some position on these things, but we find that. It's not just about the the capacity or the whether it's okay or not to demand, defend, or distract. It's the tragedy of finding that we seem to be unable to uh, leave alone our demands, to leave alone our defences, to leave alone our distractions. I'm actually not going to let you ask uh, things as we go through because it'll I'll lose my thread a little. So please use the time this evening for any of that. You know, we 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 have this simple activity called meditation, which is the microscope through which we're looking. And of course, sometimes, and some of you have been reporting, oh, exquisite moments of peace, and sensitivity, attunement, bliss, brightness of mind, depth of feeling, clarity of perception. And it can also seem sometimes that those moments are rather few and far between. And a lot of meditation is... is um, Characterized by some sense of struggle, you know and it's, you know we kind of mostly look like we're sitting here peacefully. sometimes we look around everyone else looks like they're sitting here peacefully, but it's like there's a whole melodrama unfolding here and Much of that melodrama is the drama of wanting, wanting things to be different. Even if it's just wanting to not have any wanting happen. I want to be able to just sit here and yet there seems to be a million reasons why I can't just be here. A million ways to want my experience to be different, to want my physical experience to be different, to want my emotional experience to be different, to want to be in a different time, to want to be in a different place. And I can't seem to turn that off. It can be rather shocking, and let's face it, it can be rather discouraging, rather depressing. That's why I spend a lot of time here talking people down from jumping in their cars and believing and it's hard to be faced with the rather that kind of raw truth i can't seem to abide in an undemanding undefended undistracted way so we're invited to really study what we could call the mechanism of wanting but what is it that I'm hoping for? Another way of asking that, what do I really want? It's a very powerful question, actually as a contemplation, in all kinds of situations in life, when, we, when we're seduced by thinking that we know what we want. Right? If only that was happening. If only I had that. If only that was different. The kind of the mantra of "If only," that we repeat. It's a helpful reflection. When I think I know what, I, what do I really want? Well, so as we see, you know, the wanting is a powerful force. In fact, we might say it's the powerful force. If we can see all those inner movements, demand, defence, distraction, as movements of wanting, we can actually see the force of wanting, the force of desire, as the very engine of human life. Actually, as the very engine of life. And it's an important engine, it's a vital engine, it's a beautiful engine. I want that's would Descartes would have been better with that. I want, therefore I am. Right? Wanting seems to define our existence, at least in the conventional sense. Right? I want, therefore I am, or I am, therefore I want. Wanting happens, and actually, you know, so much of our creativity of our sense of progress through life whether in a material sense or an emotional sense or uh, just an inner sense i want <coughs> to understand life i want to deepen right? how do we all here because of our want to practice that kind of uh, the kind of something when we look closely, beneath them, you know, they're just the little this and that's that we want uh, throughout the day. A kind of depth of wanting, the longing of the heart, a longing for truth, a longing for freedom, a longing for depth, the longing to honor some kind of uh, deep intuition that there's a freer way to be. Some deep intuition that it's possible to abide freely in life. That it's possible to abide, to know a consciousness that can be free. Meaning, be undemanding, undefended, undistracted. And spiritual teachings, of course, address wanting. But there tends to be a kind of dichotomy. It's just the nature of human mind. And spiritual teachings are an expression of human mind as as much as anything else is. We tend to go from the dichotomy of believing in wanting. Trying to get, have, do, become obtain, attain everything that I want and kind of exhausting ourselves that way. To switching to some sort of position this is the sort of dogma that religious traditions and spiritual teachings often take and Buddhism big takes it on big time. Or at least some of the ways we hear Buddhism expressed takes it on big time. The idea that desire it basically, it might not be put quite like this, but basically the idea that desire is evil, that there's something wrong with wanting. And we hear about the um, those of you who might be familiar with sort of orthodox or maybe you might even say uptight expressions of spiritual teachings in Buddhism, for example positing some kind of uh, getting beyond desire. some talk of desirelessness, some positing of a state in which no more desire ever arises. Which sounds dreadful. Really. When no arising of the creative impulse, the, the impulse to move, to develop, to grow, to explore. Right? Wanting is something important, vital, universal. Not just even in human life, but the sense even as life itself coming forth as an act of creativity. It's like sometimes when we really sense into just the wonder at and the delight in and the beauty of the natural world, we might sense it as life's desire to express itself life's desire to come forth to expand to express to come alive the irrepressible liveliness of life especially at this time of year the sense of that might really stand out and some of you again have spoken about that just being here these couple of days so If we're going to explore wanting, it has to be an open exploration rather than the taking of some position. A position that wanting is okay or not okay. That doesn't leave us anywhere. You see how uh, teachings try to take fixed positions about things. If we look again, we can see Buddhism trying to take fixed positions about karma and rebirth and uh, and desire and self and not self. Fixed positions don't help us. We can look in our own culture and see the way the church takes fixed positions on sin and on marriage and on heaven and hell and uh, stuff like that. And of course, fixed positions a fixed position of a certain belief that this is right or this is wrong or this is you know might give us some kind of comfort to orientate our belief you know and for, and some of us really find it quite comforting to to hold on to a fixed position that it's like this, this is right and this is wrong but uh as soon as we have a fixed position, we've kind of killed off our inquiry. And in the grip of the tyranny of certainty, thinking, I know what is, what isn't. So, an open inquiry into that contemplation, like I was just saying, what do I really want? Well, we might say, even an inquiry into what is. Wanting. There's a there's a um, there's a kind of. I was going to say a psychological model, but it's not really quite that. There's a model that the the Buddha uses to explain how experience forms. All right. And what that means, exper- the way experience forms, how this, the, the sense of uh, experience from just the arising of whatever it is, of what's seen, what's heard, etc., forms in such a way of the way we construct out of it a sense of self and a sense of world, a sense of time and a sense of space and a sense of our negotiation with that world and with time and space. (coughs) The negotiation between self and world uh, being the the negotiation of wanting. Wanting is a movement about self and world, what I want, what I don't want, etc. So I don't want to go too much into and make it technical, but I want to give a little sense of that model in the way, as part of uh, opening up this question of wanting. And so the model starts with contact. Six kinds of contact. Right? The, the, the six senses. So the, in the Eastern traditions, they use six senses rather than five. The five that we speak about in the Western tradition. Seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, tasting. But also, the mind is... Seen as a sense organ in the Eastern traditions, so conceiving, remembering, imagining—it's also right. So the six sense bases being the ways that experience can arise. I—I like I see the world, I hear the world, I touch the world, I taste the world, I smell the world, and I conceive of the world, I imagine the world, I remember the world. Six ways that experience can arise can arise, and based on the, those arisings, one of three flavors. Anything we see, taste, touch, conceive, remember, etc., has one of three flavors: either it's pleasant, or it's unpleasant, or it's neutral. And then we see the origins of what we were talking about as the three Ds right, in those three flavors what 's pleasant, I like, and what I like, I tend to move towards the movement of wanting what 's unpleasant i don't like I want to avoid get rid of move away from I want to get rid of, and what's neutral tends to just not make much impact right? so I tend to just the wanting tends to just go somewhere else so i d- i want. Well, there's nothing here I want. And that's why it's harder to track neutral experience. Right? Because the, the wanting something particular and the demand, there's something particular that's focusing my attention. I like that. I want that. And the same when the disliking. Oh, I don't like that. I don't want that. But in the neutral experience, there's nothing that's, that's focusing my attention enough. And in the neutrality of that, the wanting just goes somewhere. It's like a sort of restlessly seeking for something that I can then latch onto. So contact, feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Perception. And the way, whatever's, whatever's seen, remembered, heard, etc. It's like we add our associations to it. They are accumulated experience that reinforces the perception. Actually, in the bare contact, like of just seeing, in the bare contact. In the hearing. It's a kind of symphony of sound going on right? in the bare contact. But the perception fills in the gap. <coughs> oh yeah, crows. I've been here before. Or we hear the, the oh yeah, somebody blowing their nose. Oh, yeah, somebody's shuffling on their cushion. It's like we fill out the perception with our accumulated knowledge. And that's a totally normal part <coughs> of experience. Sometimes there's a kind of strange view around meditation scenes that if I was really present, if I was really in the present moment, then I wouldn't be accessing the past, I wouldn't be uh, projecting into the future. I'd just be totally... And then I'd just hear the sound. Wah, wah, and I wouldn't add anything to it. And there may be moments, actually, there may be moments in the refinement of meditation when one's attention is so still. And, and when the undemanding, undefended, undistracted nature of attention is so receptive... And when perception has kind of just gone on holiday for a while, that we do hear in that kind of pure way just the sound. But we have to be very careful with the projection, with the idea that that, to make that an ideal of meditative experience, that I ought to be just hearing without adding on any, you know, that I shouldn't be labeling. Oh, that that's too conceptual. But hey, it's really valuable that we've got concepts. It's really great that we can fill out our experience conceptually. Otherwise you'd be beginning again every time. Oh, what's that? (laughs) (laughs) Like a goldfish. You know the thing about goldfish having three second memories? Apparently. It's like they're swimming around their bowl. Oh, that's new. Oh, it's new. It would be like that. (laughs) Well, maybe. So we see how experience starts to form and out of the, actually, the unboundaried, symphonic nature of experience, do, I don't know if would you if you know what I mean if I would describe it like that, but just listen for a moment. The symphonic nature of experience. It's like there'd be you another know, piece of music by uh, John Cage, uh, four minutes and thirty three seconds. You done He's a well known composer and got everybody together for a recital, a concert in a big warehouse, and all he did was open the doors at the back of the warehouse onto the street for four minutes and thirty three seconds. And then close the doors again. A rather beautiful expression of an invitation to pay attention and why do i say the symphonic unboundaried nature of experience because in the in the just in the contact and the feeling there isn't a boundary there's no edge to seeing there's no real definition in the hearing there's no definition between the end of one sound and the beginning of another like in a symphony that that overlaying of all the instruments and that kind of extraordinary harmony between all the different instrumentation, or it may be a disharmony, but an unboundedness. Everything arises together, and like we were just saying with perception, it's really helpful <coughs> that we can um, that we can distinguish, that we can say, "Oh crows, oh people." Oh, this and that. It's really helpful that we can uh, establish so a boundary to sense of perception. And yet, like we were saying yesterday about being so seduced by our productions of mind, we end up just living as if the boundaries are concrete. And so I look out and actually visually as well experience is symphonic there's a whole tapestry of light and colour and movement and form here. And even your visual field is beginningless and endless. There's no sharp boundaries. You can't see the end, edge of your visual field. Like, just like you can't hear the edge of sound. Just like you can't feel the edge of your body. Experience is edgeless. And yet we, uh, perception fills in some of the, you know, to kind of creates edges so that we're able to say, oh, you and you and you and you. And yet in, in blindly adhering to that sort of perceptual filling in that we do, we start to concretize our experience. We start to concretize the sense of self and start to concretise the sense of other. And, like I say, this isn't about taking fixed positions. It's not about whether we should be doing this or shouldn't be doing this. That would be an absurdity. But about studying the way experience makes itself up. Contact. Feeling. Feeling. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Perception. It fills in the gaps. It gives us a sense of what, who, where, how. And then craving. The response. Craving sounds like a strong word. Wanting. What we've been calling wanting. So then the response to what's perceived. The liking, the not liking, etc. And that's the, the, the way we start to make a sense of time out of our experience. Wanting and time really go together. And it's kind of hard for us to divest ourselves of the sense of time. Time seems so real. And we might pay lip service to the idea that there's no past and there's no future. There's just this. There's just now. Try and be in another time than now. I mean, naturally, that's a way to confront ourselves with the mystery of time. Try to be in another moment than now. And thoughts of the future are right here, thoughts of the past are right here. And yet we, we get into, we tend to, again, for us to explore, we tend to get into a kind of tight relationship with time, driven by the engine of wanting. I want this makes a movement towards. Right? The this, which I want, obviously isn't here. If it's here, I, don't want, I can't want what I've already got. Wanting creates a sense of absence and movement towards. Wanting to get rid of creates a sense of somewhere to get to, to get rid of. The distraction creates a sense of of another moment, another possibility. (coughs) So, this life under the microscope... Is an opportunity to track that process. And like I was saying earlier, we have, the, we have this kind of intuition, this longing for an abiding where we're not caught in the trap of grasping, the trap of time, the trap of perceptual limitation, the trap of this and that, here and there, the trap of duality. And yet, what easily happens when we start to really study this stuff, not in an intellectual way, but study this stuff in our own experience, inevitably, inevitably, we kind of pass through a stage where it just feels kind of hopeless. There's just so much constant sense of demand and defense and distraction. What am I going to do? I like the idea of abiding, undemanding, undefended, undistracted. And not only do I like the idea of it, but just occasionally I get a glimpse of a few seconds when the demands and defences and distractions drop. And I say, oh, hallelujah, this is it. And then they come back again. And it seems like such a fragile... uh, Uh, difficult thing to manage those rare moments, but how am I I to do away with all of that? And we start, you know, partly just because of the sincerity of our heart, partly because of the depth of our vision of possibility of this kind of practice, we start to long... And people will come and say, I just, I just want to be free of all this. I just want to drop it. I just want to let go. If we start employing the spiritual language. I just want to let go. But what happens then is, of course, we're actually adding fuel to the fire. We're adding another layer of wanting. Right? I want to stop wanting. I want to... Not to be undemanding. I I want to be undemanding. I want to be undefended. I want to be undistracted. And there's something simultaneously kind of painful. I mean, yeah, painful about that. And there's something actually simultaneously that's got a real uh, important depth and beauty in it when we're consumed by our frustration in practice. It's a lovely line by uh, like Thomas Merton, I think it is. He says, When all your practices have left you and your heart has turned to stone, only then is true prayer possible. It's kind of beautiful. When your practices have left you and your heart has turned to stone, just somehow speaking of the importance of actually, you know, the fact that we care about our experience, the fact that we care about this vision of the possibility of living freely. Sense the possibility, and yet, oh, the wanting that gets layered on top. And in the frustration of that, in the frustration of layering the wanting on top of the wanting, we notice Sometimes we just kind of wish we could go back to sleep. Mm -hmm. You know that saying, "Ignorance is bliss." That's where that comes from. Actually, ignorance isn't really bliss, but there's a stage in our practice where it feels like it would be. You know, it feels like just that that kind of blind bouncing around between demands and defences and distractions that I used to do before I laid this whole number on myself that I shouldn't be doing it anymore and so there's a kind of formula I'm not sure if formula is the right word kind of a guideline maybe something for attending to our experience which like we've been saying often, often I mean very often means attending to the movement of demands and defences and distractions and that guideline is to see if we can simultaneously hold the, the total willingness the total commitment to be present to what's happening And the total forgiveness for every moment that we're not. If we only have one side of that equation, we get into a mess. And in a way, our practices are navigating between noticing the one side of the equation and the other. Sometimes the the sense of total commitment there. Right, I'm really going to... But then it's too tight, too demanding. The expectation that I ought to be super attentive, that my experience ought to, that my meditation ought to deepen. If we only have the other side of the equation, oh, total forgiveness, that's what I'm practicing. (laughs) Too loose. Never get out of bed. And that sense of a total commitment plus total forgiveness—that's not even a means to an end. That's not uh, a strategy to get somewhere deeper. That—that is the way our heart transforms. That is the way we dare to let go of our demands and defences and distractions. That is the way we dare to, um, you know, in the forgiving, in the noticing, both the sincerity of wanting to be here and find out what's happening, and in the reality that practice is a constant failure to do that, or a near constant failure to do that and softening around that constant failure the softening around the forgiveness of that constant failure (coughs) is the collapsing of the need to make ourselves different the need to make our experience different because it turns out that that is what I really want what I really want What I really long for is to put down the burden of manipulating my experience, controlling my experience, contracting around my experience. What I really long for is to allow myself to know an undemanding presence, an undefended abiding. To know the capacity to be that I don't need to add anything to or take anything away from or mess with. the capacity to let life right now in the only moment we have be just like this and so that the space that that opens up the ease that that opens up the freedom that that opens us up, then actually gives us some choice about what to move towards and about what to move away from, (coughs) about what to engage in and what to disengage from. It gives us some choice in our wanting, some choice in what we want and some choice in whether we want Our friends. The choice is yours. And how we attend to our experience. With the fire of our longing, the depth of our commitment. The power of our forgiveness. Like this, we put our lives under the microscope. Like this, we get to see what's happening. Like this, it gets freer and freer.